Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series, looking at the post-Brexit economic and legal landscape. You're going to talk to us today about social policy. What does Brexit do? And importantly, what does it not do for social policy? Well, the most interesting thing about the events of the past couple of days is that in the white paper on the Great Repeal Act, the UK government has basically said they'll reenact the labour laws and social laws which are currently derived from EU law after we leave the EU. And that's a very interesting and important move. It essentially means that the, gov- the current government's position is not to use Brexit as an excuse or pretext to weaken labour rights. On the contrary, we would be continuing to conform to pretty much most of the social rights and laws which already bind us. One exception is the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights. That would not become part of UK law. It looks as if the Prime Minister has said, well, she has said in public that there's no wish to downgrade workers' rights after Brexit. And the the Great Repeal Act, we don't yet know what precise form it will take, but it appears that, of course, it should really be called the the Great Continuation Act, because what they're really doing is continuing EU law, but making it, converting it into British law. So another word for it would be the Great Conversion Act. This act of conversion will include labour and social law. I think the current position is that the UK government will say, we accept the need to comply with EU social policy. And they may well say the same about things like environmental policy. And that addresses a major concern of the EU27, uh, who have already been saying to us, or the Council, Commission have been saying to us, you must at least conform to EU standards if you want to have a comprehensive trade deal going forward. So I think there's a fairly clear message here from the UK government. We are not using Brexit to set up a light regulation, tax haven type economy. We'll comply with EU standards. We really are serious. We want a deep and comprehensive trade deal with you. The rhetoric around the Brexiteers and the Brexit vote was that they didn't like EU legislation. They didn't like the EU courts. Yes, many of the leading Brexiters were people we could describe as libertarians, and many of them had argued at various stages in their careers, Liam Fox, other people, for deregulation of the labour market. Just this last week, Ian Duncan Smith repeated the argument that there should be significant deregulation. Priti Patel had said the same thing in the referendum campaign. Now, the current position is not that at all, that Brexit won't lead to wholesale deregulation. However, if there's a hard Brexit, which means basically no deal, then it's the implication, I think, would have to be this, this comes back onto the agenda. Yeah, deregulation. The Prime Minister also has a review of employment rights going on with Matthew Taylor. That's right. So the Taylor review, we don't yet know what that will say, but it's addressing the issues in the so-called platform or gig economy. So that's a sign that since Theresa May took over as Prime Minister, these issues, and we might add to this corporate governance, have a greater salience. So far, though, no, no new legislation has come out of this process, but actually it's early days because she hasn't been Prime Minister for all that long. Do you see the UK becoming a low-wage, low-tax economy? And with that low-wage, low-tax economy, employment rights, whether you're Uber, whether you're one of the new technology companies, go out of the window? I wouldn't say we're a high-wage economy at the moment. We have more low-paid workers proportionately than is the case in other Western European countries. So the issue is not, could we become a low-wage economy? The issue is, could we become a high-wage economy and, and could we have more social cohesion and less inequality? We need to move in that direction. Now, this problem of low pay is connected to low productivity because low pay 
in, in many senses, is bad for the economy because the incentives needed to persuade firms to upgrade, invest in capital equipment, the, f the incentives needed for both workers to train and employees to give training, these incentives are weakened in a system which depends upon cheap labour or low-cost labour to, to survive, for firms to survive and be competitive. Firms could be competitive in different ways, by investing in skills, by investing in training, by upgrading. Now, we need to move our economy more closer to that model. Some firms, some sectors are already in this high productivity, high wage economy, but not enough of them in this country. And we need to converge, I, I would argue, with other northern European systems. We need to be more like them. Now, leaving the EU isn't exactly a great step in that direction because it might detach us from the northern European mainstream. However, as we've been discussing, so far Brexit isn't being used as an excuse to, to push us down a light-touch, low-wage economic route. That's, that's a very interesting development. I, th I think in agriculture the most likely outcome is if the supply of migrant labour is significantly reduced, then we would expect farmers to invest in, in technology, labour-saving technology. And we know this happens in other countries. For example, in South Africa, somewhat different situation, wages there are extremely low in agriculture. But when the, the minimum wage was substantially increased in South Africa, what, what happened very quickly, actually, was significant investment by farmers in labour-saving technology. So they upgraded, basically. So we know this happens. The labour supply is reduced and or wages go up. Employers often do respond by investing in labour-saving technology. Now, you might say that this causes unemployment, but if firms are run more efficiently, it's possible for some of this labour to be reabsorbed. If the economy grows, then again, labour displaced by capital investment should, should find jobs elsewhere. What we need is a dynamic, growing economy, not a, a static, backward one. So the possibility of Brexit are that we could use it to actually build better rights for workers when we lose migrant labour, as we inevitably will, the degree of those losses are debatable. But given that not all migrant labour comes from the EU, but where do you think we'll be in five years' time down the Brexit negotiation route? And what will be the impact on social policy, employment rights, the best and the worst scenario? So all these complex issues around the so-called exit bill, they've got to be sorted out. But let's assume that negotiations begin. They almost certainly can't be concluded within two years of March 2017, so there'll have to be a transitional arrangement. And I read that to mean that we would, would remain, in effect, within the single market and subject to all its rules and subject to ECJ, European Court of Justice, CJEU jurisdiction. So if that happens, actually very little would, would change. And in the longer run, if this goes according to plan, assuming we're carrying on leaving, I guess we have to assume that, there'd be as deep and as comprehensive a free trade agreement as possible, deeper than the Canadian agreement, deeper than the Ukraine Association agreement, maybe not much would change. But of course, if that's the case, what will happen to the labour market? Many of the social policy rules would be the same. Perhaps also on migration, we shouldn't really expect to see significant falls because although we would presumably, if we leave, no longer have free movement of persons, it's highly likely that there would be some sort of deal under which migration from EU member states for seasonal working in agriculture or migration by medical professionals would continue to take place as part of either a transitional deal, let's see how that works out, or possibly a longer term free trade agreement, because if you look at other free trade agreements around the world, you do often see provision for that limited type of labour migration. And so, in a way, you're optimistic? 
Well, I'm optimistic that a deal can be done. The downside would be, what if no deal is done? Now, then I think there are two scenarios, aren't there? One is uh, hard Brexit, and then I, I think it, it's pretty clear the government is highly likely to switch tack and say, well, Philip Hammond has already said, if you force us down this route, then we could become a low-tax, low-regulation economy, not a mainstream European economy. That's more or less what he said a few weeks ago. That would happen. And I think the downside to that would be we would not only be failing to address the concerns about inequality and deindustrialization, which helped to drive the Brexit vote. This would just make all that worse. But we wouldn't be helping our economy either because there's no real evidence that a modern economy can survive on low pay. But of course there is another option. If the deal falters and we're faced with a situation of a hard Brexit, politically we are bound to see discussion come back onto the agenda, certainly staying within the European economic area, that's bound to happen. And it's already been suggested that there'd have to be a separate vote on leaving the European economic area. So I think we, it is yet to become clear, actually, what would happen if there was a choice between no Brexit and a hard Brexit. And this uncertainty possibly would be very damaging. Leaving aside the arguments arising from the CBR economic forecast that the effects of Brexit might not be as serious as, as a Treasury model suggested, we nevertheless might be facing a period of uncertainty, and that could go on for several years, and that wouldn't be good. And I think our empirical evidence supports the position that one can design labour laws which achieve a measure of social justice, of greater fairness, are far from harming the economy. They can contribute to a dynamic economy. Now, for the UK to step back from that model would not be offering any kind of economic salvation and would certainly not be addressing the needs of the so-called left behind, the segment of the working class in the UK which voted for Brexit and probably tipped the balance on June the 23rd. So it doesn't seem to me to be a plausible option, either from the point of view of fairness or from the point of view of efficiency, nor from the point of view of the political process around Brexit. It's not an option for us to go back to a deregulated, light-touch labour market. So we really ought to map out and use Brexit to find out and scope what kind of economy we are and to be bold in saying what kind of economy we want. If we had stayed in the EU, we could have done this anyway and it might have been compatible with the broad thrust of EU social policy. But of course, you're quite right, Brexit has focused our minds on things which to some degree had become issues that were just never discussed in in policy circles. There was a consensus that our labour market policy was the right one in government circles, even though it was leading to more inequality, even though it was leading to social fragmentation. Now, Brexit was a shock, that's for sure, for the uh, governing elites in, in this country. So in that sense, you're quite right, it does give us the opportunity to rethink our labour market policy. We absolutely must do that going forward. And we need strong regulation and strong laws. We need strong laws and we also need access to justice for workers. We need stronger collective bargaining and we need measures to achieve greater wage equality in this country. Yeah, And proper access to employment tribunals. We, we absolutely have to reverse the recent rules imposing fees on applicants asserting labour rights before em- employment tribunals. That's an absolutely essential step. And if the current government is consistent in its position on addressing the underlying causes of the Brexit vote, one of the things it must consider doing is reversing those fees reforms. So Brexit, on the one hand, 
may have dampened people's spirits, particularly the Remainers. On another, it is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity not just to do these things, but to open up the debate about what we want to do. I suspect that going forward, if we just think about this in terms of domestic policy, Brexit's going to help us have a, a, a better debate about labour market policy. Ultimately, these solutions require international cooperation. So the downside to Brexit is it may make it much more difficult to forge international consensus on these questions, but let's see what happens. To what extent we end up outside the single market, really it's going to be a matter of degree. The current government's position for a deep and comprehensive trade agreement actually takes us back in to much of the single market, and we will be bound going forward by single market rules. And We may even have to accept the jurisdiction of the ECJ over a large number of issues. So let's see how that pans out very different from the rhetoric. It's absolutely different from the hard Brexit rhetoric that we've become accustomed to over the past few months. That's right. Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series looking at the future of social policy post-Brexit. Thank you, Bonnie. (laughs) 